Introducing the Two-Way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the Two-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the Two-Way for yourself at newbalance.com. Good morning. It's Monday, March 2nd, and you are listening to the College Football Daily, a 24-7 sports podcast dedicated to catching you up on and breaking down the day's college football news. My name is Connor Tapp, and today on the College Football Daily, we're talking to three different experts about the rapidly changing financial landscape in college sports. We're only two months into our shiny new decade, but it already seems as if the next 10 years of college athletics will be heavily shaped by the prevailing trend of the previous 10. That is, the rush of the other Power 5 conferences to join the Big 10 in launching their own TV networks. In 2018, the Big 10 network distributed $51 million in revenue to each of its member schools, a number that would make you the 61st richest athletics department in the country, even if you had no other source of revenue. If that $51 million were being paid to a venture capitalist instead of to a school, it would place them in the top one-tenth of 1% of the wealthiest people in America. The consequences of this new era for the schools and the Power Five conferences are pretty clear. They just keep on getting lots and lots of money. But how does the new playing field change the game for the schools left out of the Power Five? Schools like Boise State and UConn. And how does it change the incentives for schools like Liberty University, who are aggressively climbing the ladder up into Division I and now the FBS? We'll close out the show talking to Matt Brown about why some schools are facing a choice about potentially scaling back their financial commitment to athletics. And we'll talk to Ron Counts, who has been covering Boise State as the Broncos are suing the Mountain West over the terms of their TV deal. But first, we're going to talk to Dr. Karen Weaver, a columnist for Forbes.com and an associate professor at the Drexel School of Sports Management. Dr. Weaver wrote her dissertation at the University of Pennsylvania on the formation of the Big Ten Network. You know, very few people, like I think about, you know, the kids today and like the kids at college right now and just how much they would not recognize the college sports like TV landscape that I grew up in as, as, a, as a child of 1986 uh, compared, to, compared to what we have now where every Power Five conference has a, a dedicated network. And I just wonder if you could take us back in time a little bit before the launch of the Big Ten Network, just kind of a, an overview of the framework of how everything was kind of set up and organized prior to that? Well, sure. Um, I think you actually have to go way back before 1986 to the pre-1984 landscape, which was that the NCAA controlled what football team got on, on what television part of the country for how many weekends a year. So imagine Mark Emmer today picking and choosing the winners and losers and today we can't imagine, you know, not only being able to see one or two games a weekend, 
uh, we're happy when we see one or two games a day. And so um, the landscape really changed in 1984 when the University of Georgia and the University of Oklahoma took the NCAA to court and saying, you're, you're restraining trade here. You're not allowing us for our media rights, which they called their property rights, to be able to um, uh, effectively, effectively share them in the way that we think is appropriate for us, not appropriate for the NCAA. The Supreme Court agreed and that sort of blew up the NCAA's media model. And for the next five, six, seven years, they battled with another group called the College Football Association as to who was going to control those 64, 65 schools that had the most amount of media interest. And finally, with the evolution of the 1996 Telecommunications Act that was uh, put in place by the government, there were finally outlets. Uh, instead of having analog signals, we had digital signals. And so that gave us many more options on an emerging technology, which was cable television. So instead of having five or six or seven choices, overnight you almost had the op option to have up to 500 channels because they were using something called digital spectrum. So that's when the idea of creating these regional sports networks, you know, like uh, Comcast South uh, or, or um, AT&T uh, Southwest California, where, you know, they'd be anchored around a specific team, let's say the Los Angeles Dodgers or the Chicago Cubs or, or other um, uh, entities. Baseball was popular because they had so many games per year. There was a lot of content there. And so that was the idea that I think was sitting in the back of Jim Delaney's mind when he decided that, you know, we can do a regional network around the Big Ten Conference. We, we have a loyal group of fans. We have a loyal um, established base in, the, in what at the time was an eight-state footprint in the Midwest. And he says, and we put on the Olympics, you know, virtually every day because our, our sports offerings are so large. You know, some of the teams in the conference had 36 varsity sports. He said, there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to, to control our own um, media package. So that's how it got started. It's easy to look back now at how influential the Big Ten Network has been since then and kind of changing everything. But was there a contemporary understanding of, you know, in 2006, as these papers are being signed with Fox, that like so much was about to change? Absolutely not. In fact, there was a lot of um, great uh, frustration and anger. And in fact, the uh, conference office prepared for every school in the, in the Big Ten at the time, which there were 11, um, it, talking points as to how to get their fans who were used to seeing their games on local television, uh, at the most on ESPN, but mostly local television stations, for free, we're now going to have to find a cable provider or satellite provider that had the content and then potentially pay more for it. And so that was a real uh, hurdle in trying to get fans to understand. So the Big Ten uh, Conference started a campaign uh, around, um, you know, call your cable provider, tell them to add the Big Ten Network. That kind of thing had never happened in college sports. ESPN had done it. But to get people to all of a sudden think about 
wait a minute, there's a, that's where all my games are now. People vote with their pocketbooks. They're not going to think about, oh, I can get more sports. All they're thinking about is where can I watch football? And so it took a year for the Big Ten to get distribution on some of the major cable platforms. How much of this, how much of the Big Ten success, the Big Ten network success is a direct result of Jim Delaney's leadership. Like if, if for some reason Jim Delaney retired the year before all of this started to happen, like is, is there a chance that the, the sports media landscape we're in today is substantially different? Or is this, is, is what we have now kind of an end product of a vision that was particular to him and his leadership? Well, I I really think, and that's why I wrote the articles I did for Forbes, but I really think that there were some key things that went on in the Big Ten, and it was spoke to the culture of the Big Ten, and also his communication style with the presidents and chancellors of the Big Ten. He had been very frustrated in 2003-2004 when he went to ABC and ESPN, and he said, let's renegotiate our Tier 1 rights deals. And ABC said, thanks, but, you know, we're going to stay right where we are. We have no reason to give you any more money. We're happy with the way things are. And, you know, jokingly, one, one of them said, you know, you should go off and start your own network. And, and Jim kind of chuckled to himself. And he says, well, maybe I'll just have to do that. And he took that idea seriously. And he started having conversations. And then as he was having those conversations, he fully kept his chancellors and presidents uh, informed by regular memos, regular uh, conference calls at every meeting that he had with them. He would constantly update them as to what was looking as a good option, what they might consider making a decision on. He literally walked them through the steps of how to make this decision. Now, one thing about the Big Ten, uh, they they, they have this philosophy, and I understand this from having worked at four of the institutions, is that we're going to compete like heck against you on Saturday, but then we're going to cheer that you do well against everybody else on Sunday and Monday. So this idea of sharing revenues, because the Big Ten shares all of its revenues equally, unlike the Big 12 with Texas and some other places. And that culture, I think, allowed for the presidents to think collectively, as Jim was feeding them this information that perhaps maybe this is a better idea for us to all operate as one versus Ohio State doing their own thing, Michigan doing their own thing, Penn State doing their own thing. So thinking about more the money side of things, I mean, these these networks have been so successful and therefore so lucrative. And I, I wonder about how this kind of changes the equation for some teams in division one, when you like look at the difference in value of being the last team in one of these power five or autonomy five uh, conferences compared to being the last team out. And like, how does that kind of change their incentives or kind of like how they view their place in the landscape. And even, you know, th- that could be programs like Boise State, but also like even further down the line in like Division Two or Division Three. Well, uh, yes, we have, we have the, the autonomous or the power five and certainly everybody else. That's, that's one gap. 
And then you've got within the power five an exploding gap developing at right now where the big 10 and the sec are so far ahead of everybody else that you really are going to have an old adage of the big two and the little three inside the power five, because the revenues just simply have not been able to be um, developed uh, in those other conferences. ACC came to the, to the table very late with their network. Uh, and I have argued that at times they almost came with a linear network at a time when linear was dying. So whether they can recapture those revenues in the new digital ecosphere, ecosphere is yet to be seen. The Big 12, because of its revenue sharing or not sharing agreement that they have with the member institutions, Texas not only gets Big 12 money, but they get Longhorn Network money as well. And that creates a differential for the other members of the Big 12 uh, conferences. Uh, and then the Pac-12 has been... I just, it's just been so public, their struggles with the model that they thought would be the game-changing model, which is we're going to own the network 100%, and we are therefore going to create all of our own content and, and devise our own distribution model, and it just has not lived up to expectations at all. So even if you look at the mid-majors, yes, you can see that these schools that have 13 to $20 million a year athletic departments it's, it's almost ridiculous to think that they can be successful against schools that have 150 to $200 million uh, revenue athletic departments. Um, but everybody you know, believes in the, the little engine that could. They believe that they, they were just given that opportunity. If they could just be part of a Power Five conference, life would change. And all I can say is uh, you look at schools that are still accepting institutional subsidies, even within the Big Ten, Schools like Indiana and Illinois and Minnesota, who are just still, even with the subsidy from the Big Ten, the revenues from the Big Ten network, are still not breaking even. So this is a very exclusive group of schools that are truly, truly benefiting from the conference television networks. For a while, it seemed like the flow into division, or I, I guess I should say FBS, um, for on the football side, I, I focus on football. I understand this touches other sports, but um, was one way. But it, it seems like in recent times, we've kind of seen some programs kind of making the assessment that we can't financially, like everybody was trying to move up. It seems like lately, we some some are like, okay, we maybe got in a little over our skis. Let's go back down. Is that a decision that more and more programs that are kind of left out of this elite, elite tier might have to make? Well, it's funny you mention that because I'm actually doing some research on that right right now. I'm looking at schools who uh, left Division II to go to Division I. And my tentative early research is showing that when, when schools announce that jump uh, from D2 to D1, and it's usually uh, D2 to D1 without football, I think the, the, the jump is just too, too large to try to go D1 without a football tradition already in school. Uh, so it's mostly, in their minds, a basketball move. They're thinking, okay, how do we tap into the March Madness revenues? But what you see is a lot of enthusiasm from fans and donors and, and faculty and students and presidents excited about this opportunity to join a new conference and compete at a new level. And they think it's going to change their 
institutional dynamics in terms of the number of students that apply, the quality of the students that apply. And, and I'm actually studying right now if that's true. And I've identified um, a couple of schools. One of them is Winston State in uh, Winston-Salem in, uh, in North Carolina. And, and they have actually decided to go back. They've gone back from Division One to Division Two because they just said, "Look, we, we give. We we can't we can't keep up at this rate to be able to, to continue to fund our other programs on campus. The, the the athletics department has been a has been a black hole just sucking down our money. So I'm really I don't have any early reads for you yet because I'm still studying the numbers. But I'm really looking at about 15 or 20 schools in the last. 10 or 15 years have left Division II to go to Division I, and how has that turned out for them? Boise State football is the rare example of a truly upwardly mobile athletics program. The Broncos didn't move up from FCS, or as we called it then, 1AA, until 1996. Ten years later, they finished ranked sixth in the country after winning the Fiesta Bowl with one of the most unforgettable plays in college football history. But the Big Ten Network would debut eight months after the Broncos' crowning achievement, setting into motion the next round of conference realignment, one that would welcome in the likes of TCU, Utah, and Louisville, while leaving Boise State on the outside looking in. Boise did accept an invitation to join the American Athletic Conference, as that group was rising from the smoldering ash of the Big East. But the Broncos reneged at the last minute and opted to remain in the Mountain West. Today, Boise State is suing the Mountain West, stirring up speculation that they might be looking for, among other things, a trap door out of the conference. Ron, let's start with why is Boise State suing the Mountain West Conference? Well, it's it's really a long-standing argument here. So, so this all really dates back to 2012 when Boise State was bolting the Mountain West for the Big East. Um, that deal fell apart, and so in order for Boise State to come back, they negotiated pretty hard with the Mountain West, and, and the Mountain West gave it a lot a lot of their demands. The Mountain West was giving them well, 1.8 million dollars extra on top of the TV bonus that everyone else was getting, um, and they were also negotiating Boise State's home games as a separate package. So Boise was getting a little extra cash for that as well. So so all this really co- co- boils down to Boise is the Mountain West's cash cow. You look in, in terms of football, there really is no one else that is of national relevance in that conference. No one else that's on ESPN or major channels on most weekends. You're no one else that is in the conversation for a New Year's Six bowl game. So Boise is taking full advantage of that. They're they're getting their extra cut. They believe that they believe they deserve the extra cut because without them, there really is no Mountain West. There's no there's no national interest in the Mountain West. So they they want that extra cut. They believe they deserve it. Um, the Mountain West has kind of grown weary it seems of of giving them that extra cut Uh, one thing to keep in mind here is when this deal this deal was signed in 2012 out of all the conference schools in the mountain west only one university president and one uh, athletic director still remain from when that deal is signed so craig thompson who is the mountain west commissioner is getting all kinds of pressure from his new bosses they want more equity you know, they don't understand why boise state is getting the pretty girl treatment they just they they don't they don't get that I, i don't think so Boise said, no, 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 you cannot, you cannot just take this away from us. Uh, the Mountain West uh, commissioners and leaders 
all met in December, and they actually voted to end Boise State's 1.8 million uh, bonus. They voted to end negotiating their games as a separate package, and so that's where, where all this legality started. Now, you, you mentioned that Boise has dropped the dropped the uh, lawsuit. There is a report out there from San Diego Tribune saying that, but I've not been able to confirm that report yet. Um, Boise's not saying that to me. The Mountain West isn't saying that. Uh, the court paperwork is still active and pending. Um, so if it's been dropped, no, nothing's been done in an official capacity yet. In press releases about this lawsuit, Boise State has used language like, quote, we are weighing our options, end quote. Is it reasonable to assume that those options might include potentially leaving the Mountain West Conference? I think it's on the table. I don't know how realistic it is. So, so the, the, this has been a, a, something that's going, been going back and forth for years as well with Boise State fans. They don't understand why they're not in a Power Five conference at this point. And you know, I get it. Boise State has a built-in marketing uh, power. They have a brand. You know, they, they wouldn't be hard to add to a conference. But you have to look at it like if they haven't been invited to a conference yet, why would they magically get invited now? There's just not uh, there's just not a really logical landing landing place for them to go right now. I mean, you look at the Pac-12 geographically, it makes so much sense, but they haven't been invited to the Pac-12. Uh, the Pac-12, and, and this is something I learned in recently, all the Pac-12 schools are actually designated as R1 research institutes. Um, I didn't, and Boise State is not. So, is that affecting why they're not inter- uh, uh, inviting them to the conference? I really don't know. Maybe. Um, the, back, the Big 12 seems like a, 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 a landing spot, especially if they decide to go back to their 12-team conference. But there's been no invitation. There, there's been no one showing any interest in Boise State. And then we love this idea of them going and joining the uh, American Athletic Conference, possibly taking San Diego State with them, making this mega group of five conference. But financially, I'm not sure that's really going to make much sense for, for Boise State because maybe they would make a little bit more in their, on their TV deal on the AAC but the added travel costs are going to eliminate all that. So, so from a financial standpoint, that doesn't make for, make sense for Boise State. So, in my opinion, at some point, this all blows over. The Mountain West kicks Boise a little extra money, and they stay put. Is this all about TV money, or are there other sources of friction between Boise State and the Mountain West? Uh, there is a little bit of other friction, uh, especially it came down this year. The the American Athletic Conference's uh, commissioner, whose gosh name I'm blanking on at the moment, he he did a great job putting together an ad campaign for his for his teams. When when we're talking about the race for the Group of Five, the race for the New Year's Six uh, bowl game, the top three schools were Boise State, Cincinnati, Memphis. The AAC went to the floor for their teams. Man, they they went on a campaign, social media. They're sending out letters. They're calling. Boise had a legitimate question about to Craig Thompson, why aren't you doing the same? Why aren't you advertising for us? Why aren't you pushing for us and advocating for us more? Um, and Thompson didn't really have a great answer, to be honest. Um, and, I, you know, so so there's definitely some friction there. Um, I, I think Boise would love to be in a Power 5 conference. I, I, I just, you, you look at the money difference. I mean, I read a story just the other day about, about the money – the, the TV money that the Pac-12 is splitting, and it's somewhere in the neighborhood of like 40 or 50 or $70 million for some of those programs, whereas Boise is coming out with, you know, $5 million, $7 million a year. So the money alone in this Power 5 conference is just out, out astronomical, and they would love that, but I'm just not sure it's a realistic thing. There are a lot of things that Boise State could attempt to do to try and improve its pitch to Power Five conferences about how it would be a valuable member. But one thing that they're never going to be able to change is their geography. Is 
the unless Boise State gets into the Pac-12, travel is always going to be an issue, logistically, financially, you name it. Is is the sense that, and again, the Pac-12 would be a a relatively seamless transition, but let's say it's the Big Twelve or or even the AAC. Is the is the sense that the other benefits of membership in a conference like that would be so great that they would outweigh the inconvenience posed by the fact that Boise State would be so far from most of its uh, most of the teams that would be playing. I, yeah, I don't really know. I, I don't know that that's going to be. And, and I think that's where they have to they have to kind of you know balance this thing out. I mean, yeah, it's you know maybe maybe they join the AAC and make you know say two or three million more dollars a year but if they spend that three million dollars traveling to get to those games you know what have they really gained so yeah i think geography will always play a part um i think i think boise would love to stay in the pac-12 because they have so many regional rivalries so many easily easily sellable games oregon washington state oregon state washington all these schools are just are a hop skip and a jump from boise and they would love to do that but just i don't know i don't know what the disconnect is maybe it's that research institute um point that i made earlier i'm not sure what the disconnect is with the pac-12 but it, it's just, just doesn't seem like it's going to happen how kind or unkind has the lens of history been to boise state's decision to not join the aac Oh man, that's that's. We, we, I was talking to someone about that just a couple of days ago, and and if you think about that, man, it would have been such a monster conference. I mean, you you look at Memphis, Cincinnati, SMU, UCF. You add Boise State to that, and I mean, and then the then the thing there is, they're not just going to add Boise State. They would have to add someone else to keep that conference, the, the sides of the conference even. So they're probably going to add San Diego State, which is huge for their basketball conference. So I mean, yeah, that would have been that, that would have been amazing. Um, I think they'd look at it as an opportunity missed for sure. Um, but no one could have seen this coming. I mean, you know, we we know the what was the Big East kind of dissolved into into the AAC, but you know, no one no one could have seen ten years ago seen Memphis and Cincinnati and UCF becoming this kind of of, of almost perennial powerhouse. Um, so I don't know. I, I think people are pretty forgiving about that. I think more so the thing they're not forgiving about are these late start times, games not starting until 8 o'clock, which would be a little bit better in this new TV deal. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't think too many people are harping on that too much. I think more so they'd love to see them go join the Pac-12 or the Big 12 and just see them on TV every weekend, see them getting that big money, see them getting all that exposure. Uh, I think that's what makes people happy. Ron Counts covers the Boise State Broncos for the Idaho Statesman. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. While Boise State fans might bemoan their status as one of the first teams left out of the Power Five, they're clearly in a better position than almost every other program not in that exclusive club. As state legislatures across the country have cut back on funding for higher education, some programs have had to face tough decisions about whether to scale back their financial commitment to athletics. 
Matt Brown writes a twice-weekly newsletter called Extra Points about the off-field forces in college athletics shaping the -the on-the-field results. Unfolding controversies at Eastern Washington and Colorado State over how much those schools are spending on their sports programs have been the focus of several recent issues. So Matt, I wonder if we could just start by having you catch us up on what exactly has been going on with Colorado State and Eastern Washington. Sure. So these are two different, but broadly similar, you know, situations here. You know, the the first event here at, at Eastern Washington is we had a, a a group of, of faculty here that reached out to the athletic department and the business school for uh, some help in trying to determine what the ROI was on athletic spending or, or whether it was, it was worth it, and they declined. So they ended up doing their own study, and based on their conclusions, they recommended that the school either drop out of of um, college athletics altogether or, or downgrade their, their department to drop out of division one and go into division two or perhaps NAIA uh, in an attempt to save money. And, you know, that's notable because if you're a college football fan, you've probably heard of Eastern Washington. They have the, the blood red football field that looks like the depths of hell. They're, they're a perennially very strong FCS program. This is, this is where Oregon, you know, finds the quarterback and where Washington state loses every once in a while. So, um, the idea that a very successful FCS program would have some people within the department saying this isn't worth it would be of note. You know, granted, the university said, hey, we're, we're not planning on dropping anything right now. We're going to talk about this report. We're going to discuss it. But, you know, headlines saying we're getting out of the football game were premature. And then Colorado State, a, a couple of days later, although they're, they're not related, their, their faculty um, the council issues a, a, a statement that they hadn't done in over a decade saying we need to spend less on college sports. You know, Colorado State essentially doubled their athletic department budget over the last decade, haven't really won any major championships since then. They're still in the Mountain West. They they had a couple of coaching searches not go the direction that they wanted to. Um, And now there's some people within the faculty who are saying, maybe we're not getting, you know, as much out of this as as, as we'd like. You know, you you have to remember that not just at these two schools, but at public institutions all over the country, Audience schools are facing pretty severe budget cuts. You know, states aren't providing as much money for higher education as they used to. And so if you're a, an English professor and you're constantly being told, how can we get more revenue out of your department? We've got to make sure your department makes money. How can you do more with less? And then you watch your football team in front of, you know, not a whole lot of students, not a whole lot of fans lose money, at least in your perception. I can understand why they might be upset. And I, don't, I honestly don't think this is being driven by like resentment necessarily. Like I, I had, a, I talked a, swapped a couple emails with the, with the professor at Eastern Washington and I'll have a, uh, you know, some more on this at an extra point. I think a lot of academics realize that there's some good that comes from college athletics and it's a great way to bring people who might not otherwise attend the school or be connected to the school to be made aware of it. The reason that these things are coming to a head is, is because there's, so, there's an increased scarcity of resources. You know, if, if, if taxes went up or, or at least, state funding to higher education went up and faculty felt more secure, I don't think they would mind so much that you're running up a deficit for a basketball team nobody's watching. But if you have these guys who have PhDs in English and they're making less money than the local high school teachers make, that's where I think you look at and go, why are we supporting this thing that nobody's paying attention to? Um, And that is true for, quite frankly, a lot of schools at the FBS level. Matt, would it be fair to think of these two cases as data points in a broader trend of schools increasingly expressing a degree of skepticism about the utility of spending quite so much on college athletics? 
don't know if you want to say schools necessarily. I'm not, I'm not certain that that's true for their administrators, you know, obviously within the athletic department or outside the athletic department. But I do think there is a trend and it's a trend I expect to continue that more faculty members are going to express some concern. You know, these two are the, are the, are the most current, but you know, every year we have, I think, some pretty vocal individuals at Eastern Michigan who have uh, you complained about the school's investment in athletics. There's faculty at UMass that have uh, been pretty vocal about questioning the school's decision to spend to, to compete at the FBS level. There's people at Rutgers uh, who have questioned that decision. Uh, there, there's a few others, and I think as we move into a world where uh, the undergraduates are, are forced to pay more for athletic departments via student fees, and more universities are shifting to adjunct rather than tenure-track professors, then there's a kind of an unease in campus politics. If you're at a place where the athletic department isn't a very big deal but costs a lot of money, I wouldn't be surprised to see more faculty raise questions. So over the past 10 years, we've seen an, a net of plus 10 FBS schools uh, from 2009 to, to the end of 2019. Obviously, some, some schools moving down and others moving up within that, but plus 10 net. And that's a pretty aggressive increase over a 10-year period. And you see schools like Liberty kind of going all in on trying to have their football program kind of be uh, kind of be a loss leader for the school as a whole, as use it as a vehicle for juicing admission and just interest in the school in general. But at the same time, it kind of feels like maybe we're on the the end of the boom of entering, moving up to FBS or maybe Division One um, as well. I, I, what, what do you think of kind of where we stand with that? Yeah, there's, there's there's a bunch to unpack in that question, I think, right? Like, it's true. Liberty, I think, is a good example, and there are uh, several others that look at college athletics as a major marketing tool. And there there is a, a documented phenomenon called the Flutie effect, which shows that if an athletic department, particularly football or men's basketball, dramatically overachieves, there's often a spike in admissions and in the quality of applicants immediately thereafter. You know, and, and we've seen this... Um, it's usually a certain kind of school. It's usually a small private school or a large, you know, state flagship that, that gets a bump. You know, right? Alabama and Clemson have enjoyed um, admissions bumps and, and uh, quality of applicant bumps since their football success. Butler and Gonzaga and BYU have, have noticed bumps after their men's basketball teams have succeeded. A lot of schools will talk, to, talk themselves into chasing that. But you have to win big in order to get it, and it doesn't last very long. If you make the Boca Raton Bowl, you're not getting that Flutie effect. And if you do for one year, like maybe Kent State did, because they haven't you know, won a bowl game in about 200 years, you're not going to get it if you make the Boca Raton Bowl the next season. So it, it's a difficult thing to sustain. I think in terms of looking at are some teams going to move up or some teams move down, what you're, it, it depends a lot, and this isn't a very satisfying radio answer, but it depends a little bit on, on the school, and it depends on what the NCAA allows right now. Because the NCAA right now says, hey, you have to get a conference invitation if you want to move from FCS to FBS. Or you have to get a waiver like Liberty did, because Liberty threatened a big lawsuit of religious discrimination. And if the NCAA removes that waiver, I think you see probably three or four schools jump pretty soon. You know, Eastern Kentucky has not been shy about wanting a spot in the Sun Belt or wanting a spot in FBS for exactly those reasons. I would not be shocked if in a couple of years NCANT decides, hey, we want to be uh, you know, the first HBCU school to really make a go of, of, of being at the FBS level 
for more than a year or two. Um, there's probably a couple other ones, and they're not necessarily the, the huge FCS programs that people think when they talk about who might move up, like a North Dakota State or a James Madison. On the other hand, I think some Division II teams that are in places where travel is a really big expense, you know, the, the few Division II teams in Texas or west of Texas, west of Colorado, um, may drop sports entirely or, or certainly drop their football programs. There's some of these schools at the D3 level that are facing some really difficult financial crunches. Um, I would not be surprised if a couple of Division I teams that don't sponsor football but sponsor basketball, like Savannah State recently, decide to reclassify as well because it, it's just going to become too expensive. You know, off the top of my head, Chicago State, I think, is a, is a pretty good example. There, there may be one or two other ones. Like, I would be blown away if, you know, more than maybe one or two FBS programs decided to reclassify, even if they probably should. You know, if, if we're keeping it honest, like, do, do I see a path for UMass uh, or, or, or maybe Akron or a couple other programs to have meaningful FBS success? No, like they, they, they probably should um, look at reclassifying, but will they is a much different question. As we've seen these conference TV networks begin to generate so much revenue for the Power Five conferences and perhaps particularly the SEC and the Big Ten, it seems like we are adding several new layers of stratification in terms of who has the, the wealth generated by college sports. You've got the Power Five, and then within the Power Five, you've got the SEC and the Big Ten, and then after the Power Five, you've got another big drop-off, and then uh, between FBS and FCS and on and on down the line. And I wonder just whether you see the massive influx of cash at the very top of the college football ladder having an effect downstream on some of these programs making decisions about how they want to classify, whether they want to move up from FCS to FBS or perhaps move down? I think they should. And so much of this depends um, on what exactly they're trying to get out of their athletic program. And, and my concern is that we have some schools that aren't really being honest about that. If your goal is I want to, we want to get up to the FBS level and we want to compete for conference championships and we want to make sure that we're marketing our school out of state, um, then there are some schools that I think could potentially make that jump and do that, um, recognizing that they're never going to compete for playoff bids. They're never going to compete on, you know, for major national television. They're just trying to be a regional program. You can do that even if the Big Ten is making more money than like a Caribbean country. There are some schools that look at this and, and realize that they don't have the fan base to justify making that move unless they can win big. And then I think you should make some really hard and fast decisions about, about whether that's, about whether that's worth it. You know, um, an Appalachian state, a program that already had a really dedicated, strong local fan base that would support them, even if they, they took some growing pains with making the jump, I think could afford to do that. But Appalachian state at the FCS level, I think pretty clearly had more fans and a more committed community than a lot of teams currently at the FBS level. And if you're trying to, you know, be kind of an expansion team, like some of the teams that recently joined the Conference USA, you know, hey, we're in a big market. We have a new program. We hope that if we win, the fans will come. I think that approach is going to be harder and harder to do. Matt Brown is the Associate Director of College Brands at SB Nation, author of What If? A Closer Look at College Football's Great Questions, 
and most directly pertinent to the conversation we just had today, author of the twice-weekly newsletter called Extra Points, where he goes deep into the weeds on the off-field forces shaping the on-field results in college football. That's going to do it for today's episode of the College Football Daily. If you appreciate what we're doing, please express your support by leaving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. And leave us a review, too, while you're there. Many of you have been doing it. You've been listening. Which tells me you've been listening to the end of the episode and following instructions very well. Thank you. Your suggestions continue to get added to our content calendar, at the very least as ideas that we're going to flesh out and see if there's a way we can get them done. So please uh, keep giving your suggestions for uh, topics we can investigate, um, topics we can talk about on future episodes of the College Football Daily in your Apple Podcast review. For Trey Scott and our producer, Tani Levitt, I'm Connor Tapp, and we'll see you on Monday for the next edition of the College Football Daily. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.